you got 30 seconds, you want to be a better runner, get better electrolytes, go to drinklmnt.com slash let's run, get a free sample pack, six different flavors sent to you, only $5 shipping. I'll refund your money if you don't like it. Electrolytes without the junk, no sugar. It's great. Try it out now. You can check out on your phone, literally 30 seconds. And while you're on your phone, sign up for the supporters club. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Become a Let's Run.com VIP today. Save 20% on running shoes. Get an extra podcast every week. Subscription pays for itself. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. We now live in a world where a woman has run 62-52 for the half marathon. That's what Let Us Embed Gide ran in Valencia on Sunday, and we'll break that down, as well as American Frank Laura running 61-61 flat, the fastest half by an American this year. Amateur Hour at USATF continues. The latest installment is the marathon selection process for the 2022 World Championships in Eugene. The 430-mile barrier has tumbled in the beer mile. Corey Belmore goes 428 in England. And we debate who should be World Athletics World Athletes of the Year. This is Jonathan Galt. I'm joined by my bosses, the co-founders of Let's Run.com, Robert and Weldon Johnson. Welcome to the show, Rojos. John, this is Robert Johnson. I'm super pumped to be here. This is the co-founder, Robert Johnson, not the Oregon coach whose name has been controversial in the news. By the way, we'll talk about this that this week, but pumped to be here. My son's back out from school, school with COVID yet again, so this is like the only hour and a half I have focused on track today. Super pumped to talk, and I've got a new phone, transfer service providers, had to clean out the old personal voicemails on there, John. There was like 360 of them that I had not fully read. I would say two-thirds of them were from you or my mom or my dad. But I want to apologize to the people who I may not have called back in a promptly matter because there were some amazing voicemails on there. My personal voicemail. This isn't the 844-538-7786, 844-LET'S-RUN. We love to hear from you. Sometimes I think people push three, which comes to my personal voicemail. I assume it's spam if I don't recognize the number. I'm not going to assume that anymore. So I have zero voicemails in there. To the NCAA champion and Olympian that called, I apologize for not getting back to you. Don't take it personally if I didn't get back to you because I also had someone offering to run a world record in the Let's Run.com singlet. I had the father of a prominent pro call me. By the way, if you are that father, I apologize I'd love to talk to you about what you wanted to talk about. So there were some fascinating things on there. Someone was upset that Gwen Jorgensen wasn't was sponsored this year. Tom Walsh wasn't. I don't even know if that's really true. I heard that Gwen was unsponsored and actually paying Jerry Schumacher to coach her this year. So some interesting things there. I loved hearing from the masses, and I want to hear from you again. 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786. If you hit three, you'll, you'll talk to my cell phone. If you hit seven, you'll go to the secret show voicemail. Well... Let us admit, G'day probably offered John to wear the singlet in Valencia, and Robert didn't get back to her. Also, some show programming notes. We dropped a podcast on Monday with US 800-meter stars Raven Rogers, Ajay Wilson. That should be in your feed if you haven't heard it. Separate podcast. And also, we want to do a new thing. 
I don't know what we're going to call it, like the twin podcast or essentially I want a pro on there with your buddy and we just talk the shit more conversational, but it turns out Ajay and Raven are good friends. Raven just had her 25th birthday bash and Ajay was there. So it would have been cool actually to talk to them together. These interviews came apart separate, but 800 meter royalty in your feed. Now, Robert, I have a question for you. Guess how long Raven Rogers longest run is of her life. If it's anything like Donovan Brazier, I was going to say 45 minutes. I'm going to up that up to one hour. Wow. I just know Robert hasn't listened yet, so he nailed it actually to, to the minute. I've listened to about half of it. I'm actually enjoying and I thought you did a really good job in your interview technique. You were speaking close to the mic, asking direct questions, not leading on in the questions. I'm enjoying it so far. Oh, by the way, an audio engineer did call my cell phone, offered to help us with the audio for the show. Please call me back. I'd love to improve our audio. Wait, don't you have his number? Can't you call him back yourself? I'm looking at my notepads here. I don't know if I wrote down the number, but he's a podcast listener. <laughs> so you, you transcribe the voicemails you missed onto a notepad? He literally has a... A physical notepad that Robert is holding in front of him. It, it's you know your your phone normally stores that information, Robert. Well, I was actually emailing like the personal ones to my like personal account to save, and then the work ones. So I think I probably have it in my work email under like audio, but I haven't I haven't done that. I mean, it was actually some neat stuff on there. Like my aunt who recently died, I've got a voicemail from her wishing me a happy birthday, etc. But I a guy yesterday, an author who wrote a famous book. I'm not going to say who it is, but. I called him yesterday, called him back because he left me a voicemail. And when I answered, he said, hello, upstate New York, because my area code. He thought I was a Chinese spammer. He just assumed it was a computer because he said, oh, no one calls me anymore. So I'm not the only one that's, if you rec- if you get an unrecognized number, assumes the worst. All right, Isn't that what be- Larry King would do? Like, upstate New York, you're on the air, go. All right, we had a world record over the weekend. It was a pretty awesome one. It is one that... Robert posed the question. He got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and was so stunned by this that he stayed up to write a recap. And he posed the question, was this the greatest performance in the history of distance running? And that sounds hyperbolic, but it it was really awesome. She broke the let us in back key day. The world record going into the race was 64.02. She ran 62.52. She is now 51, 59 seconds faster than any other woman in history. And if you look at the performance tables, I mean, this is just sort of a rough guideline, but World Athletic scoring tables say it is better than any other distance performance by a woman. It would equate to 151 for an 800, 345 for a 15, 1339, 2838, 829 for the steeple, and 211 for the marathon. So I guess that's the way to start is, you know, this this race. And Robert, tell, tell us your story of crafting this article, you know, how amazed were you when you saw the time? It was interesting. I woke up, John, when you get old, I guess you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I don't really do that, but my dad does it all the time. But for some reason, I woke up, had to go to the bathroom. I'm like, wait, what time is it? It was either four or five. I'm like, oh, the race is over. So I went to the thread and I saw the time. Someone said, no way, it's 62.50. And then there was a message, registered message poster, Colin. The bottom of page four said, I can't believe what I just watched. 
They went even farther, John. They said, that's got to be the single best run over by anyone over any distance. And I was like, wow, this deserves some mega props. So I think it took me about three hours to get it up and get it on the homepage. Went back to sleep. And then John got to analyze it. You did a good job, John, with your own piece. People have been praising you. I had to do all the grunt work in the middle of the night, but I'm happy to let the spotlight go to you, John. For you. I really like the way John did it by comparing this world record, looking at all the world records, and what he did was, what's the second best mark and what's the gap? And this is the second biggest gap between first and second of any world record except for the women's steeplechase. So that was a great job, too. So I, I just was amazed. Having thought about it a little bit since then, I've got a few misgivings about how I reacted to it, but I'm glad that we promoted it. We talked about this on the Friday 15, the bonus podcast on Friday when we were previewing this race. I said, it's really disgraceful that more people aren't talking about this race. Some people don't like, you know, some of the things that are posted on our message board and we get accused of being racist or sexist mainly or homophobic or transphobic, etc. And I'm like, where are all these woke people? There's two of the finest female athletes in the world. No one's talking about this except for Let's Run.com. We're promoting it. I joked if... If we call her Y squared, the previous world record holder, I can't even pronounce her name, last name, John, help me out here. Yalimzerf Yehuelor, who actually we discovered last week was not the previous world record holder because her time, 63-44, had not been ratified. The course she ran and was short. But she still, she ran under the old world record. She ran 63-51 herself. She delivered. The problem is she went up against a total freak of nature in Latessa Mbagide. Yeah, and I joked. I said if she breaks the overall record of Y squared, we were going to make a Y squared equals the time. It would be a perfect shirt if she ever did get a world record. And I was going to send a box of the new T-shirts, maybe like blue shirts with pink writing to women's running, which doesn't cover these type of events. But won't be doing that. In fairness to women's running, I don't think they cover any events. But maybe I'm wrong there. It's more of a fitness website. But before I get into my misgivings about the way I may have covered this a little bit, I, I want to praise it first because when I started thinking about it, I'm like, and, and you like this, John, you said when you woke up, I guess I texted you this thought and I put it in the article, I think. I compared her, like, what are we witnessing here? And I'm like, I think we're witnessing the second coming of, uh, do you like, if you're looking for a female example of Paula Radcliffe, former teen phenom. Both won World Junior Cross Country. Kaday won World Junior Cross Country twice, which is basically impossible to do. And then moves to the track. Pretty darn good at the track, but could never win the gold. Paula never even won a medal. And then moves to the roads and is just unbeatable. And then I also use the example, if you're looking for an African comparison, of L.A. Kipchoge. He did win a global gold, but he was a World Junior Cross Country champion as well. But not dominant on the track. And then moves to the road, and you're like, oh, my God, this is his event. It's kind of like Ryan Hall, too. Like, Ryan Hall was really good at the track. He did win an NCAA title, but he moves to the marathon. You're like, wow, he was pretty good at the 5K, but that's not his event. He's way better at the marathon. So I just thought, like, are we witnessing someone who's going to just absolutely be completely unbeatable on the roads moving forward? And I've joked in the past that we don't – everyone says, well, we need more developmental teams in the U.S. This isn't even a total joke. I'm like, no, we don't. I'm like, if you're not top 10 at Foot Locker in high school, if you're not a superstar in high school, we shouldn't even let you run pro. And I don't really mean that. My brother had a great 
pursuit of an Olympic team. Some of these people make teams, but the dominant runners to me, the people that I think that should be prodigies, that I mean, that should be redefining the sport. What do they all have in common to me? Teenage phenoms. And Mo Farah is like the only exception to this. He never chased the times, but it's like, I mean, even Gebra Celesi, he didn't win a world junior cross country title, but he was silver. People say Daniel Coleman came out of nowhere. I just looked it up today. I mean, he was also world junior cross country silver. So if you did medal in the world junior cross country championships, please don't eventually try to get into the GOAT status of all time. It is interesting you bring up World Cross, Robert, because so no no boy has ever won two World Junior Cross titles. Four women have done it, but there are only two who have done it since they moved to the every other year portion, which is even harder to do. To win World Juniors two years apart, like Viola Kibawa and Gonzabe DeBarba both did it, but that was back-to-back years. The two women who have won World Junior Cross two years apart, Faith Kipyagon, 2011 and 2013, the greatest miler of all time, and Letessa Mbekide, 2015 and 2017, who you know is one of the biggest talents we've ever seen. So pretty exclusive club there. If you're a shoe exec and you're looking to someone who to sign, you literally – I mean, there's been some misses there. I'm not saying everyone who medals there is a superstar, but you, that to me is the best way to look at it. Just who medals in World Junior Cross. It's the best filtering out of the talent. And if you're a 1,500-meter runner that, that medals in that event – it's almost like a sure thing you're going to be a superstar if you have the endurance to do that. It's pretty sick. Like, look at Komen, look at Faith Kipiagon, Asbel Kiprop, etc. So I just was thinking, like, and I think we, we talked about this before when she ran 29.01 in the 10,000. We're like, of course this woman's going to redefine what's possible. And then she kind of doesn't win. She only gets the bronze in the Olympics. We kind of forget. Like, all the, all the, all the, all the indicators are here. Like, this woman is just going to be insane so the question now is is she going to even be better at the marathon than she is the half marathon or is like the half marathon her sweet shot i mean could she be like a zersonate tedese that is the question i was thinking robert immediately and this is how this is how all running discourse goes right someone runs a fast half marathon and we immediately wonder what they could do for the marathon i feel like the half marathon's probably going to be her best event just because she again she's the world record holder in the 5k and 10k as well I think she could run a great marathon, but her two best performances of her life have been the only two races where she has run longer than 10 kilometers. That was her 15K world record in 2019 and now her half marathon world record in 2021. So I kind of feel like this is her best event. But the thing that struck me, and I I will, full disclosure, on the podcast on Friday, we were talking, should I get up at 2.30 to watch this? Two different agents both told me you need to get up and watch this thing live at 2.30 a.m. East Coast time. I didn't. I slept through. I woke up. I, I missed a performance for the ages, so I guess that's on me. But that, that's, And the other thing is just this is the rare performance that redefines what we think is possible for athletes, right? But you'll see world records, but, you know, when – Hassan ran 29.06. I was like, okay, that's really, really fast. But it wasn't like a, t- I, don't, I don't think I w- anyone was like super, super shocked by it, right? Or 62.52, that's just, you'd be a pretty good, uh, most most men in America would be very, very happy to have 62.52. You know, even very good, you know, even good college runners would be pretty proud to have that as a personal best. So 
This is just sort of thinking now people are like, well, can we run 211 or 212 for a woman in the marathon? It's just pushed the boundaries of the event so far. And that's, that's the thing that really stood out to me is this was just like Radcliffe running 215.25 in 2003. I don't think anyone thought that was possible until she did it. Okay. You guys need to stop talking. On the podcast last week, I predicted she would win. I predicted she would run the fastest time. So people want to listen to what I have to say, I think. I think I said she'd run, what, 63.20 something? But I I laughed at the concept of 62. I'm like, oh, that's just too crazy fast. So, yes, groundbreaking performance. I mean, just some of these stats that we have in the week that was. She averaged 29.47 for 10K pace. I mean, this is twice as far as, more than twice as far as the 10K. Between 5K and 15K, she split 29.29. I mean, only three women in history, two other women, have run faster than that for 10K ever. Almaziana and Sifan Hassan, I mean, the, the two world record holders. It's just nuts how fast this is. And then it gets to... Oh, she's got to be doping. I- I'm so sick of that. I'm, I-, I don't get it. My claim to fame is pacing Paula Radcliffe to her first world record in the marathon, her 217 in Chicago. I just, I've never liked the argument. If you're better than everyone else, you have to be doping. Lots of people are doping. So we think now that the people who are better than everybody else just have better doping, then it just doesn't make sense to me. The logic doesn't make sense to me. So... I don't know what it is. Maybe she's a super responder to shoes. I mean, we, with that 15K world record she had before, pointed to like she may be one of the best roadrunners of all time. And this is sort of category breaking. It, it, it shatters the sort of paradigm we had for, the, for what's possible in the sport right now. Radcliffe did that. She did it. I 100% agree. I think the biggest winner last week may have actually been Paula Radcliffe herself. I wanted to talk about that because people thought, oh, she's so much better than everybody else. She has to be doping. And I just don't agree with that. And also, if she's doping and if she's on some soup damn super drug, why didn't she take the damn super drug to win the damn Olympics? You know? So, and then now it's, there's an well, interesting- that's a, Robert, that's a faulty argument. She was injured going into the Olympics. That's why she didn't win the Olympics in 2004. No, I'm talking no, no, about no. good day. Oh, good day, good day. Okay, sorry. Of course, everybody knows better testing at the Olympics. Better testing at the Olympics. You got to know how these conspiracy theories people think. And some people were like, "It was interesting." There was a debate on the like, "Who cares? She could never beat Hassan." And other people were like, "Oh, I don't care about Hassan. I only care about records." I think you need to appreciate both. But you know, it's not like she's not doesn't have a good kick. She closed at ten thousand and four hundred two. It's just that. Hassan's really, really good. So, you know, John, you said you think it's gonna half is going to be her best event, but so far, everything she's done, the farther she's gone, she's gotten better. So it could be that 26.2 is even better than 13.1. You know, we don't know about that. So my only misgiving on this is sort of using, I mean, I, I did it at the scoring tables. It was easy to do it at four in the morning, but I just don't think that's necessarily fair. We got an email from Ryan, and I think he also may have started a message board through it. And after this race, he woke up with the opposite feeling. I was so inspired by this, I had to write this article. He said, after this morning's result, I'm struggling to find enjoyment in following the sport anymore. And he wrote us a private email that said, Jonathan, thanks for the article and helping me make sense of Gaudet's run. My gut response was, truly, 
Who cares? This sport is a joke at this point. Why do I even follow it? I'm not at all against super shoes, but I feel like these world records on the road just aren't special anymore. That being said, your article brought nuance and multiple perspectives that were fair and insightful. We've got a lot of hot things takes on things like this, and I'll admit it's much easier to be cynical with performances like this. It takes a lot of hard work to do the historical comparisons and think through the elements of why this world record could be legitimate. Thank you for doing that work for us to be con- for us. It's important. So, I like the email. I like the thought. Well, I didn't like the sentiment of like, he, he wakes up, he's just cynical. I, I wasn't, but I wasn't cynical. But when I wrote him back, John, an email, I think this is what we should do. I said, it does not make me w- not want to be a fan but I just think we need to add one minute to every half marathon time and two minutes to every marathon time we see. So I don't think going to the scoring tables, the scoring tables were not designed for the super shoe era. So we need to get rid of that and just start. Maybe it's even 70 seconds for a marathon and 220 for a half marathon and 220 for the marathon. It's somewhere in that range minimum because John doesn't like this comparison. The Kipchoge fanboys don't like this comparison, but Kipchoge's marathon PB before the super shoes was 204 low. I used to say it was 204 flat. John says that was Berlin when his shoe was coming out. Well, first of all, when the sole was coming out in that 204 flat race, that was a super shoe prototype. I think before he'd run 20407, now it's 20139. So that's 220 difference. So if you add the, you know a minute to these times, it's still super impressive. You know, it gets you to 1296 or you know 1300 on the scoring table. So it gets you to the equivalent of 1351 for 5000 21 2904 for 10000 which lines up with the track times actually um it gets you right at 214 in the marathon so it's better than like Apollo Radcliffe's performance back in the day but only like a minute better minute and a half not something that's like 5 minutes better 4 minutes better well, yeah, we remember the pre-Super Shoe world record was 64.51. So even if you add a minute to this time, it's still a minute faster than that world record. I also think the Kipchoge thing's just... Robert's trying to argue because he had some... We don't even know how close of a prototype this race he was running in September of 2015 when he ran 204 flat in Berlin. It's acting as if that is like giving Vaporfly-like benefits, even though his insoles were flapping out and his feet were bleeding. I mean, I just think it's kind of crazy to say that he got some big performance boost in that race. Okay, well, let's ignore his PB. What was the marathon world record before the Super Shoes? Probably by somebody on EPL, by the way, but I won't, don't want, I won't want to name names. I think it was around 203.30. 202.57, Dennis Cometo. So we've come down a minute and a half. So it's, 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 it's at least 45 seconds for a half marathon a minute and a half for a marathon. I think two. Let's just do a minute and two minutes. It's, it's easier to do, right? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. All right. Anyway, so look, she, obviously the shoes helped her run faster. I still think you got to understand. You know, if you put that in context, it's still one of the all-time great runs. I still, I do think Ryan, our email though, has a point. Like sometimes I see some of these world records and they fall so frequently now because of the super shoes on the roads and on the track that it is. I can understand people getting jaded. Like, okay, times, they just don't really mean that much. I mean, if anyone who follows Tim Hutchings on Twitter, I love Tim Hutchings, but half his feed is just saying, times don't matter, you can't compare anything anymore. And because he's coming, he's been in the sport for, what, 40 years at this point, and he's being used to compare times historically. That usually you can say, okay, something run in 1980, it's somewhat comparable to something run in 2005. Obviously, technology's improved a bit. You know, this isn't anything we've, 
we haven't said before, but the super shoes just accelerated that so much that, yeah, you can't compare times through the years, but I still think if you appreciate the sport, you can understand when some performances are so good, even with these new technological advancements that they're worthy of praise. And this was a performance that got me really excited. Tim and the emailer have good points. The super shoes have cheapened road world records for sure. I mean, every weekend there's some sort of world world record broken, but I think this record could stay around and that'll be the test of time. But of course, you now have some technology that makes you one minute or two in a faster in a half marathon, two minutes faster in a marathon. A decent amount of people were used to be within that amount of the previous world records. So it makes sense that records are falling every other weekend. But this one, it could be one for the ages. I mean, she's really put it out there. But having said that, maybe she runs like this every time she runs a half marathon. I mean, like her 15K, we thought was the greatest one maybe the greatest road run of all time. This, her first time at the half, same thing. So what, should we just assume this is her greatest road run ever? I don't know if that's fair either. So No, I, I think the only person I could see lowering this record in the next couple of years is G'day. I wouldn't be surprised if she broke it. I would be pretty surprised if someone else broke it. Though I will say, why swear before the race, she said, she thought the, someone could break 63 minutes in the half marathon. I think she was thinking it was going to be her. That's going to be a goal of hers. Now she has a target to shoot at. But 62-52 so impressive. I don't know if she would be able to get it. But she's also someone who's pretty new to the event too. She's 22 years old. So maybe she's – if anyone comes close, I think it's her. One more thing about the conversions. Remember how Zerzene Tedeschi's record of 58-23 stood for – you know, eight years. So we're basically almost a minute. The, the, the minute and two minute thing works pretty well because the world record now is what, 59 seconds? It's 49 seconds faster than that. And if you actually double 49, that's like the marathon difference too between the world records. So maybe it's a little bit less than a minute and two minutes for the men. It could be, it could be a little bit more for the women because they're running a little bit slower. So it's interesting. By the way, last week when I'm looking at the world record progression here in the half marathon, I see Sammy Wanjiru's name on here twice. I don't think I mentioned this on the podcast last week when we were talking about all the Kenyan stars that have died young. You know, we've had uh, Sammy Wanjiru, Agnes Turop, and, and the hurdler, Nicholas Bett, right? It's, it was shocking to me to think about Sammy Wanjiru. You guys realize he's two years younger than Eli Kipchoge? Imagine if he was still alive and, and focused on his career, what we could be seeing. It's just a shame. All right, yeah, Weldon, what, Weldon got mad at me, John, because in this article I said that Paula Radcliffe never won a medal. He wanted to explain how she did actually win a medal. So the official defender of Paula Radcliffe, please speak. I apologize. It's just like a gross error. It's like you guys don't even follow the sport. It said Paula Radcliffe never won a global medal on the track. And I'm like, What? I I would have thought she had a couple. I was wrong. She won one silver in 1999 at 10,000 meters. But I'm surprised Robert wants to expose his ignorance on the air. Paula, I apologize. Everybody knows I get side payments from Paula. So keep them coming. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. One more thing about Valencia before we get on to some other things. American Frank Laura comes out on Friday, the Friday 15 bonus podcast. At the end of the show, John's like, by the way, Joe realized an American's running this race. He's going for the American record. And we could not believe it. We went gaga. Wells and I said we should have led the show with this. Kudos to Frank 
for going to Valencia and doing what no Americans do, racing the best and going for a fast damn time. But I said on the Friday 15 podcast, I said, this is amazing he's talking about it. It's a crazy dream. But I said, if this guy, well, let's play the clip. I would love to see him do it. It would be absolutely amazing if he did do it. But he better at least break. If he doesn't break 61 minutes, I want him to come onto the the website and and issue an apology (laughs) to everyone for lying. Because, John, I want you to write an article. I want you to write this. We've got to promote this as an American record attempt. If he does break it, black page, Frank Lohr t-shirts will be made, whatever he wants. You heard it, John. I said if he doesn't break 61 minutes, I'm going to have to have him come on the show and issue a formal apology to the fans. Now, he runs 61 flat. I did see it reported somewhere as 60-58. There's a difference between the gun time and the chip time or something. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Frank, I enjoyed it because also he was out on 60 low pace at 15K. So, Frank, no need to issue an apology. We really appreciated what you did. Amazing run. I'm glad that Frank Lara has earned your respect, Robert, by running 61 flat. But no, it, it was terrific. I mean, I loved it. You basically said my thoughts on it, Robert, that it's so rare we see Americans really say, I'm going to go run this super fast course overseas against you know, a, re- a loaded field. Like most Americans, if they run 61 flat, they're not finishing 18th. And that's what happened with Frank Lara. Could you imagine running 61 flat and finishing 18th? But yeah, he went for it. I mean, he was on 60-11 pace through 15K and faded a bit, but a terrific run. It's the fastest half marathon by an American other than Galen Rupp in over three years, which I thought was good. And not totally surprised he ran fast. I mean, his PR was 61.50, and I knew he was a better runner now than he ran than he was when he ran that in Houston last year. But just what impressed me most was just that he – he had this big goal and he went for it. And I think if you have more Americans doing that, obviously you got to have the fitness, but if you have a critical mass of guys saying, okay, I'm not just going for a PR, I'm going for 60 flat. Eventually one of them is going to be able to run something really fast. You know, you put them all in the same kind of race like this, it'll happen. You guys want me to be Debbie Downer? Frank Laura. 152 behind the women's winner or ahead of the women's winner, 253 behind the men's winner. That to me is just more impressive. That's a G'day stat. That's not a Frank Lara shame stat. That's a G'day is freaking ridiculous stat. Okay. How about this one? If he does run 60 flat, he's 153 behind the men's winner, which is pretty much how far ahead of he was of G'day. It's just crazy how fast these half marathons are these days. It's changing the game. I would love to see actually maybe I want to kind of do this, go through like elites social media and see what they're saying. Because if you're an American woman in particular right now, you might be going, Oh my God, it's a different ball game. Even for the men sort of saying how they reacted to this run. But we haven't even mentioned the men's winner. Abel Kichumba 5807. That's seven guys went under 59 minutes. That's a record. So great running in Valencia. Valencia is it's it's becoming the number one running city in the world. I would say in terms of competition. Anyone beg to differ? I think you're right. Well, then they call themselves Ciudad de Running or 
maybe Carrero that might be running in Spanish, but city of running. That's what they referred themselves as. And at first you could say that was a little aspirational, a little cocky, but I think they've earned it at this point. I mean, they've had half marathon world records, two greatest half marathons ever on men's side and women's side. World records in the men's 10 K women's 5 K men's 10 K road. I mean, they, and they put on the big events and they get the big stars. So they're doing so much for the sport of running right now. Uh, I think they have on that title. What strikes me about Valencia, and by the way, if I ever get in shape to run a half marathon or marathon, I think I'll do it there, is the weather seems to be perfect every time in the fall for these races. I mean, maybe because it's on the Mediterranean, the, 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 the winds are low and the temperature is good. I don't know, but they, they have great, you know, conditions all the time by the way if you enjoy our frank wire talk you would have enjoyed it on friday if you like this podcast you need to become a let's run.com vip go to let's run.com slash subscribe let's run.com slash subscribe get bonus podcasts etc you can also follow posters by the way so many of you may not have realized an olympic silver medalist posted on the website last week since i follow that olympic silver medalist nick willis i knew it instantly and got to read his post renato canova also had a post on there the, the famous coach I also follow Renato, so I was notified about it. Other users are missing this, these nuggets of wisdom because you're not a Let's Run.com supporting club member. All right, non-Valencia news. Shall we move on? Yeah, I guess we should move on, John. But I was going to talk about – maybe we can hold this for NCAA cross-country talk in a couple weeks. By the way, the cross-country conference championships are this weekend. We'll be talking about that on Friday on the Friday 15 bonus podcast. But John Kelly and I were debating this. Would Let's Net – Good day. Be an All-American in the men's cross-country race at the NCAA championships. It's an interesting thing. Why don't we think about it for a few weeks? We can talk about it. But John's like, if you want the deepest race in America, the NCAA cross men's cross-country championships are definitely it. How would she stack up? Could she make the top forty? My hot take is no. I, I mean, she's run twenty-one nine oh one. I think anyone finishing top forty NCAA cross could do that. So I don't think so. Yeah, we're thinking probably have to be about twenty eight forty. I think she'd be about seventy fifth, but she'd be damn good. Let's put it that way. She'd probably be on the top five of any any you know, but with most podium teams, maybe not the top two teams. Really incredible runner. All right, moving on. The thing I want to talk about most right now is World Championship selection policy. USATF announced this because this was making news on Twitter yesterday, and. To me, the takeaway, it's amateur hour again at USATF. They've announced the policy. This is something people have been wondering. We had Emma Bates on the podcast last week. She told us she wanted to run the World Championship Marathon next year for the U.S., but she didn't know whether she'd be picked because USATF hasn't come out with the policy yet. This is for a meet that's taking place less than nine months from now. But the problem with picking a marathon team is athletes only run one or two a year. So... They kind of need to know what to do this fall to secure their spot. And USATF, they came out with this policy. They said, okay, top American at the Olympic marathon guaranteed a spot if they want it. So that's Galen Ruff, the men. He's already said he wants to run. So he's taking that spot. Molly Seidel for the women. I reached out to her yesterday. She said no comment when I asked her if she wanted to run that or not. I thought you had to be top 10 at the Olympics. Both of them were. Yeah, but... So I'm just saying those those two have auto spots if they want it. The remaining spots will be picked based on order of finish at the World Marathon Majors from this fall from from the American World Marathon Majors. So Fall's Boston, statement. 
false statement. It's the order of finish from the platinum American majors. So they're not using the Abbott World Marathon majors. It's the platinum level level. They're using the World Athletic Label, which happens to be the three U.S. Abbott World Marathon majors. All right. It has no no distinction. Robert's just being a, a little bit of an ass here. But anyway, thank you for that clarification. The reason they're doing that is because if you finish top 10 at one of those platinum label marathons, it means you automatically have the standard for the world championship. So there's no standard you know, controversies or anything. But the problem – all right. So the standard – the policy itself – you can get into whether you have an issue with that. Like second, right now, second at Chicago, Emma Bates is on there. Sarah Hall will be on there. And then people would say, well, Chicago on the men's side, I mean, Colin Mickow ran 213 and he got sixth. He's now ahead of Colin Benny, who was seventh in Boston, and CJ Albertson, who was 10th in Boston, even though CJ Albertson ran 211. So, you know, you can get into debate of that, but when you're picking a marathon team, it's always going to be kind of difficult unless you have a strict trials. The bigger issue is the timing of this announcement because they've said this policy after two of the three world marathon majors in the United States have already been run. So people going into these, they didn't know what they had to do to make the team. And now they're actually saying, yeah, we're based off what already happened and this is how we're picking the team. And that's kind of ridiculous to me. It should have been announced earlier. My takeaway is, I don't think this is the best system. Placing announcing placing after the fact doesn't make sense. And Boston was more competitive than Chicago this year, so that's not really fair. There's not a really perfect way to do this. I almost wonder if you should have voting, media voting. Give media the power, John. We should just pick the team. But people can pick apart any system that came up with announcing halfway, you know, almost done with the qualifying window would be criticized because it's not fair. Some people have already run a marathon not knowing what it is. Some people might not would have done it. I think the most interesting thing, John, is there's some pretty prominent athletes that you reached out to who wanted to do Worlds, and now they're not going to be on the team. Yeah, so the guy that's really getting screwed here is Marty Hehe. So he ran the marathon project last year. He won it in 208.59, which is, other than Galen Rupp, who just ran 206 in Chicago. It's the fastest time by an American in the qualifying window for the 2022 World Championships. And Mardi, he's just started his residency in anesthesiology in at the University of Virginia Medical Center. And his plan that started in June, and his plan was, look, I'm not going to run a full marathon. He had good offers from majors this fall, but he decided not to run one because he wanted to figure out how he was going to balance training. You know, he wanted to start his residency. He's basically getting used to a new normal, having moved his family down to Virginia. Totally understand wanting to do that. But his thinking was, okay, in the past two world championship cycles, the U.S. has picked its team for the world championships based off a descending order list. The top three, they just go down until they have three people based on descending order times during the qualifying window. He kind of thought that's that's how they've done it in the past. That's probably how they're going to do it again. And he, I asked him, you know, would it have changed your decision? Would you run a full marathon if you knew about this process ahead of time? He said he wasn't sure. You know, again, he's adapting to some life changes. But he kind of, when he ran that, you know, earlier this year, he kind of thought, okay, I'll be able to have this full to get used to my new setup, and then I'll really be able to put in some serious training and peak for next July. And at this point, he's not going to be on the team. And I just feel like it's, 
he's kind of getting screwed over here. John, you said it's kind of ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. I wanted to write the. I said I was going to write the amateur hour at USATF when you published your four by one story. Just some of the things they don't respond to. They don't think that the head coach needs to talk to media members. The four by one coach needs to talk to media members. This is yet another example, but this is really disgraceful, and it proves my point all along. USATF does not care at all about. The dreamers, the people that are trying to get that third spot on the Olympic team, the people that are trying to get that third spot on, you know, the world championship team and their mind, they don't give a shit. As long as Molly Seidel and Galen Roth, the people who might win a medal on the team, they're fine. The blowback, the people who know that are just expendable. They do not give a shit. They consistently do not feel the fields and the 1500 at the Olympic trials. You know, they'll have a round where four people are eliminated. They could double it and you could have twice as many people saying they're Olympic trials participants. They don't realize it's a dream. It's a powerful dream. People are putting their lives on hold to try to do this shit, and they just do not give a shit. Max Schiegel should be ashamed. I hope he goes the, the way of, of whatever Miss Coates is in, in UK athletics. This guy's making more than a million dollars a year. There's no responsibility to him. Get out of here. Well, well, then. I hope you oh. queued up the Rojo's rant music in, a, in the post-production here, because that was the best Rojo's rant I've heard in several months. Rojo's back. COVID took away the rant, but that was great. Got the blood pumping. Can't even remember what he said. I, some things I wanted to respond to there, but I, I just was like, whoa, he's really going here. Oh, Molly Seidel. That's a perfect example. She's now an Olympic medalist, but fortunately the system was created where she got into the marathon trials because she had a half marathon time. People changed that and said, hey, we need more people in there. And someone probably said, oh, who's you know, someone who sneaks in on a half marathon time, what are they going to do? She makes the Olympics. Now she's a, she's a bronze medalist. If you just went off of pre-race accolades or something, she wouldn't have been an Olympic medalist. So congrats to her, even though she is, you know, an NCAA and footlocker champ, but we need opportunities. One final point here I wanted to make on this topic. Well, then in defense of USATF, you could say that they shouldn't, you know, if they tried to come out with this in January or February of 2021, when we were in the throes of some of the worst parts of the pandemic, and there was uncertainty about whether we were going to have full marathons, okay, I can understand their hesitancy to set this firm criteria, but they need to have come out with something by May or June when people are starting to plan their full marathons. And the fact that they didn't, now you're seeing this, you're just creating uncertainty, and I don't think that's fair to the athletes. But Again, I haven't, I haven't heard back an explanation. I've tried to reach out to multiple people at USATF. So far, I've not heard an explanation about why this criteria was so delayed in being released. We'll have a story on it if we do hear something back from them. And just the communication needs better. Maybe back channels, they were saying to athletes, we're going to release this at a certain time. But I think releasing it now is too late. But you could have said this spring, hey, we're going to release it July 1st or whatever it is. I don't think that was going on. It just shows more communication is better. John, the other thing you said is like, this was trending on Twitter yesterday. I'm not on Twitter as much as you. I didn't really see it in the hashtags on the right. Like, can you explain? Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of the, the highlights here. So Kellen Taylor, she did not care for this criteria. She's running New York. And she said, it's a good squad as it stands, but the criteria is garbage. You can't weigh one major equally against another. Chicago notoriously has weak fields, with this year being no exception. Fortunately, our depth is quite good, 
so you can be certain we will have a great team. But if you think about her situation, she's running New York, right? Which has more international... Well, it's, I don't think New York has the deepest field, but it does have the Olympic champion, Perez Jepchirchir, in it. And she's saying, look, if I want to be on the team, I need to be second or third. And she basically needs to be second because if she's third, tied with Sarah Hall, it will go to who ran faster. And since Chicago's a faster course, Sarah Hall is probably going to get the nod there. So she's saying it's going to be really difficult for me to make the team from New York just because the field's going to be a little stronger and the course is going to be slower. What if they went off of like the top American at Chicago, Boston, New York? Like they just go in that order and then they let the race directors pick which one was the best. I mean, I almost think that would be fair, but like your placing often depends on yeah, how deep the international field is, not necessarily how well you ran. It's a garbage criteria. I know in America we don't like to have selections. I mean, in the past, we've done the fastest time, which isn't really a good criteria earlier. But at least you had a full year, and you could, if you wanted to go world, you knew you needed to run a fast time somewhere. But here it's like find the weakest major with the fastest course, which I use Chicago, and run good there, and you're on the team. They they really should let, you know, I'm not saying this just because I'm a journalist, but it's not that hard to have a panel pick the best marathoners of the year for the U.S. Maybe there's a little bit of, of debate, but you, look, I mean, John well, Kellogg can tell you how much faster New York course is than Chicago. You can factor in the weather, the wind, who's in better shape, and, you know, whatever. And you, you rate on who had the best performance, not the best potential, best performance, but whatever. Let's move on. Oh, I, I actually would love to live in a world where U.S. American pros are getting mad because of John Kellogg's performance charts are being used to determine who's making the team. No, you just put right. the chart out there for, for the journalist to say, okay, if I'm going to compare New York time to Chicago time, here's the fields. Who did better? Were they competitive? I mean, to be honest, like, do I really care if you were sixth, but you almost, you know, you led most of the race, but someone else was eighth and they sandbagged the race? I don't know. Uh, the, the one other comment I thought was interesting was from Noah Drotty. He said, I'd love this selection criteria if it was released a year ago. Two-thirds of the selection races have already happened. If you're pushing it this late, don't change the precedent which is descending list of fastest times. Now, of course, Noah is also someone he would have been in position to make the team because he was second at the marathon project or he had the second time by an American 209.09. He would have been in line to make this meet. And then Marty Hare here responded to that and he said agreed from the other other dude getting the referred to himself as the other dude getting hosed. So obviously they have their opinions because they are in position to make the team, but I, I do think they have a point. Okay. We need to turn to World Athletics Athlete of the Year. The top 10 nominees are out. And unfortunately, the way this podcast is done, you guys dragged around at the beginning. I told you I had something I had to go to, and now I will not be able to discuss this. So I will look like the bad guy when I actually was not the one who was the cause of the delay. Sorry for the unprofessionalism. I just want to get it out there. I'm looking at this list, kind of show notes we have, and it says Women's Athlete of the Year. Rojas or McLaughlin? And I'm like, what? Safan Hassan is the athlete of the year. I will just get that out there. What she did at the Olympics is unprecedented. She should be athlete of the year. Convince me if I'm wrong. Men's side, is it really bad? Am I like sexist if I say Warholm deserves it, but McLaughlin doesn't? But hey, nobody tripled at the Olympics on the men's side. All right, guys. I got to go. Fans, email me, wejoe at letsrun.com. 
or call me. I, I check my voicemails. I check my voicemails. Well, soul's wrong without you, but John, so Weldon had some interesting takes. And, you know, if you look at the list, let's start with the women. I'm the one that put Rojas and McLaughlin. I think it was a mistake not to have a son. I just wasn't thinking. But the list has come out. I'll, I'll name all the names. Valerie Allman, Jasmine Camacho-Quinn, Safana San, Faith Kipiegon, by the way, had an incredible season, but no world records. Maria Lasinska, Sydney McLaughlin, Shawnee Miller-Weibo, Othing Mo, Yalmer Rojas, and Elaine Thompson-Hara. Elaine Thompson-Hara, actually, pretty damn good. But, you know, none of those women were, like, undefeated in their event like Sidney McLaughlin was. Rojas set the world record in the triple jump, won all of her competitions except for one, also set a Spanish record in, in the long jump. Venice, wait, Rojas? Venezuelan record. She's not Spanish. Excuse me, Venezuelan record. And then you've got McLaughlin with what? Two world records. And Hassan with one world record that is no longer a world record, but two golds and a bronze. So I'll start by saying this. To me, off the table immediately, I know she was undefeated. I know she set two world records. McLaughlin is not getting a vote from me. I don't think she should get a vote from anybody. She only competed in three competitions, four competitions. That's not enough. So think about it. This is the NBA or the MLB season. If you show up, you know, and only play one-third of the season or half the season, you're not going to win the Major League Baseball MVP award, no matter how good you are. You know, you could hit 40 homers in, in 80 games, or 30 homer, 35 homers in 80 games, and no one's going to give you the award because you missed half the season. She didn't do enough meets. She should be ineligible for a season award, award in my opinion. Do you agree with that take? I don't think she's a ne- she should be ineligible. I would still have her in my top five but I would not vote for her to win for the same reason. Yeah, she she had three 400 hurdles finals. World leading 5283 at the at the Music City Track Carnival. So that was not even one of that's one of her races is a domestic US meet against zero competition. Then she broke the world record in the two others to win the Olympic trials and broke it by a lot to win the Olympics. She gets a lot of credit for that. But yeah. It's it's three 400 hurdle races. I just think when you have other women like Rojas, who also broke the world record and competed a lot, even Elaine Thompson, hurrah. I mean, Elaine Thompson, hurrah. You got to think her times really are the world records, right? Because she's going up against Flojo. Those That's the only person who's faster than her in either the 200 or the 100. If you think that she ran the basically ran the 100 and 200 world record, I mean, I have that. She lost a few times to Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, but I would say my top four is Hassan, McLaughlin, Rojas, and Thompson-Hurrah. And yeah, I think you can even say McLaughlin should be in the top three, but I think, I don't know, in terms of winner, I'm probably probably still leaning towards Rojas. I mean, she was just the total dominance in her event. She did lose in Monaco because of the final three format, but... She broke the world record in the Olympic final. She's just so much better than every other triple jumper. Like Hassan, in some ways, Hassan kind of gets penalized for running the 1500 though, right? If she just stuck with the 5K and 10K, I believe, let me look at the results. No, she's not getting penalized. Weldon's rewarding her for trying the triple. She got three medals. No one's ever done that. 
You're viewing the loss as a negative. He's viewing it as a positive. Okay, I, I guess that's fair. I would view it, a, view it as a positive as well because we've never seen a woman have a season with the kind of range she had. 353 for 1,500, 1,427 for 5,000, okay. But then 2,906, world record at the time for 10K. She was undefeated in the 5K and 10K. And she was third at the Olympics in 1,500. So, and she had a world record, though it was almost immediately broken. Yeah, I think it's, I think Rojas, I might even go, I'm kind of tempted to say Thompson Hurrah just because the, like those hundred times are just insane. Like I know she got beat a few times, but that late season tear she went on, the problem is she wasn't always the best woman in our event. Like Shelly and Fraser Price beat her a few times. I I think it's probably Rojas, but it, it's a very lively debate. It's a shame that Fuljo's time's out there because that's gonna that's gonna kill Thompson Harris chances. Maybe maybe if you're technically doing it, she deserves it. But come on, she didn't set the world record. She's not gonna beat these other women that did set the world record. You know, if, if you're looking at Hassan versus Rojas, Hassan beat a world record that lasted. You know, her world a world record that wasn't. How old was the ten thousand world record when she beat it? Five years old. You know, she beats a five year old world record that lasts forty eight hours. Rojas beats a world record that has stood since 1995. So I can see giving it to her. And, you know, I kind of just assumed it would, without even looking at it and thinking about how many, how few meets McLaughlin did coming in, I was thinking, oh, the, the, the voting's out. It's going to be McLaughlin or Hassan. That's what I was thinking. And then I saw a tweet by David Monty saying he voted for two field event athletes. By the way, I think everyone can vote. Fans, it's open for voting if you want to vote. So... I can see but, both. I, I I think that winning the five and the ten in the Olympics is not that unprecedented. The world record, what does it mean because of the super shoes? The fifteen hundred is impressive, but she didn't win it, so it's cool that she did it. I I can see either one. I think it's got to be one of those two, in my opinion. I think it will come down to them. Hopefully, moving to yeah, the men. Robert, I just one last down the women. I I think it has to be Rojas because I just looked up the world all time list. She had four of the five greatest jumps of all time this year 1567 world record in tokyo then 1552 in lausanne 1548 in zurich and 1543 in anduhar she also had an indoor world record so i think you add all those things together i do think it's rojas but if you vote for hassan i don't think that's a stupid vote either but she did lose a meet this this year how much do you hold that against her i don't hold it a ton because the one meet she lost which was the Monaco Diamond League, she had the longest jump. She jumped 15-12 during the regular competition. And if I'm reading this result right, she just lost because she fouled in the in the one jump jump oh. off at the end. Yeah, then give it to her. Give it to her. Because Hassan lost meets too. So, good point. So, Rojas is yours and I pick. But Hassan had an amazing year. And then moving to the men... I will name off all the people. Joshua Cheptegei, Ryan Krauser, Mondo Duplantis, Jacob Ingebrigtsen, Eli Kipchoge, Pedro Pichardo, Daniel Stahl, Mitidis Tintagulu, the long jump champion, Damian Warner, and Carson Warholm. Obviously, some people had amazing years. I mean, but it's going to come down to Warholm or Krauser, right? I mean, there's really no debating that. If if you vote for someone other than one of those two men, you should lose your vote from all future World Athletics Athlete of the Year awards because, yeah, it has to be one of those two. Also, we maybe need a better name for this award because the World Athletics World Athlete of the Year 
is extremely redundant. So some way to smooth that out, maybe just call them the World Athlete of the Year. I don't know. So the case for Warholm, he it was similar to McLaughlin in that he broke the world record twice in his event, and the second time by an enormous amount. Went from 46.70 down to 45.94 in Tokyo. But the difference between him and McLaughlin is he raced more frequently. He ran three races on the Diamond League circuit, including the Diamond League final. He won all of them. And then he also ran Berlin and he ran the Olympics. So he ran five 400 hurdles finals. He also set the world record for 300 hurdles, 33.26. So he didn't, he didn't re- compete a ton, but I think he competed enough to merit consideration. And then you're going up against Krauser. Now, Krauser also broke the world record. He now has the three best throws of all time. He had the 16 farthest throws of the year. World record indoors and outs and out. And the Olympic final, he did not break the world record, but he threw the second best throw ever. He threw 22.80 four times, which only seven men in history have ever thrown that far. His worst throw in the Olympic final would still have broken the old Olympic record. So the case for Krauser is just absolute dominance of the highest level. Like he's just consistently throwing all time marks and he's competing a ton and he never lost. Well, what's the case for Warholm? Isn't that the same thing except he didn't compete a ton? Yeah. The the case for Warholm is that, well, one, he had two world records, but then his other, I guess 4708 in Monaco. That's a, that's a good all time mark. And he ran 4730 in the semis in Tokyo, which is, you know, we used to think 4730 was really fast. So I guess yeah, he ran forty-seven thirty-five to win Zurich. Th- yeah, th- those are all like very fast all time, but he just didn't compete quite as much as Krauser. Yeah, it's interesting. Only the five, you know, hurdle races. So I ripped McLaughlin for doing. She did three, three finals, and Mc- and Warholm had five. So barely enough for Warholm. But I also I'm going to give you a lot more credit if you're doing stuff after the Olympics. I feel like you're promoting the sport when people are paying attention. And they both broke long-standing world records. I mean, the men's 400 hurdle world record. That stood since 1992. And the shot put, I believe, was 1990? I think it's like, how do do you decide between those two? Well, I I don't think you need to say, like, they were both long-time world records, and the shot put was also by a convicted doper. So... You could say that, you know, it's hard to say exactly. It was from 1990, but I, they both broke two of the toughest world records in the book. I think you could say that. The the thing that I mean, when I initially saw this, I put on Twitter my vote was going to be Warholm, then Krauser, and then I had to plant this third. The more I think about it, though, I'm leaning towards Krauser just because he was he was just so utterly dominant, and he did have the world record, and he had two other throws that would have been world records if he hadn't already broken the world record. Whereas the the case for Warholm is 45-94 might be the greatest race we've ever seen by anyone. So it's just how much, like Warholm had the single greatest performance by an athlete this year, maybe by an athlete this decade. But does that overwhelm and he did it on the biggest stage possible in the Olympic final. Does that overwhelm Krauser, who I think had the greatest season, 
but his Olympic performance, while exceptional, was not one of the greatest, you know, of all time in any event. That's, I was wondering that, like, do we give it? Do we do we ding him for for not setting the world record in the Olympics? But no, we should not ding him because think about it: it's World Athletics World Athlete of the Year. We're taking their body of work. So why does it matter that they didn't set the world record in the Olympics? He already had the world record. He had five throws that would be the, the would be the Olympic record. And I'm going to reward people for the indoor competition. The more I think about it, I think David Monty got it right. I'm going to go with, with Krauser. I just think the more competitions, plus the shoes, let's be honest about it. We don't know how much the spikes are impacting it. There's nothing about the spikes that are helping the throws. So Krauser, does, the field event guys don't get a lot of publicity anyways. Let's give it to the two field eventers. There we go. Congratulations to them. All right, speaking of world records, I think we need to talk about the BMI world record, Robert. Because this was, if it wasn't for G'day, this would have been the performance of the weekend. Some people were saying it might have been better than G'day's run. And Give me a break, John. <laughs> this is some stunt that it's not even, it's encouraging young people to drink. If you haven't drank Yeah, yet, Robert, you, never, you never drink beers, right? I enjoy beer, but I, I actually have a friend who's very liberal. I couldn't believe it. He said he would never take his child to a beer mile if he was in high school. He just doesn't think that you should you should be promoting this. So if you're a teenager and stuff, you'll probably end up drinking. But don't look down upon people who don't drink. Drink responsibly. The problem most people is they can't stop from binge drinking, getting themselves in trouble. I would stay away from the hard alcohol completely. There's your friendly PSA by Robert Johnson. All right, Robert. That, that's a fair point. I mean, this is binge this is four beers in you know five minutes. It is binge drinking, so I guess it's good to make that point. But I will say, when I saw this time, I was, I was stunned. Four twenty-eight. I mean, four twenty-eight miles. It's, it's a good high school time. Most high schoolers would be pretty pleased to run four twenty-eight. But to do it with chugging four beers in between, it's it's just kind of mind blowing. Like the pace he needs to run. If you look at it, so here are his lap splits: fifty-five-eight. 60.4, Now you got to remember the laps apart from the last one are only 391 meters because there's this nine meter chug zone where they can pick up the beer and walk forward. But that's still ridiculous. I mean, he, he ran three. If you add up his splits together, it's 359.2 for the running portion, which is 404 mile pace. With your only recovery in between is chugging a beer, so you might not even be breathing at that spot. It's just, it's kind of insane. And I was going to say I can't see how anyone runs faster, but actually, a few years ago, Corey Belmore himself, who's a three fifty seven flat miler, he ran four twenty four for a beer mile, but he had half an ounce too much fluid left over, so it, he was DQ'd. But this guy, he is, he is the Roger Bannister of the beer mile because he's broke well. Actually, I don't think he was the first guy into five, but maybe he's the Hickam El Rouge of the beer mile. I mean, four, sub 430 is crazy. No one else has run faster than 437. I don't know what else to add, John. He's very, very good at it. He's like a day, way, way better than everybody else. Since we're talking about events that involve problematic drinking, although I think it's fun. I mean, I, I do think I, I, I want people to be responsible about alcohol, but I also think Part of life is being irresponsible sometimes and having fun, as long as it doesn't come back to haunt you. But, All things in moderation, even moderation. Yes, even, even no, even not moderation. Even binge or even 
Fun but that was that's the whole point. All things in moderation, even moderation, means sometimes. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Didn't understand what you were saying. But there's been some allegations made at the University of Oregon. Kingo has written an article about, I guess, what eight women from the University of former track athletes, or maybe some of the current track athletes, have come out and complained about the way Oregon. Well, explain it better than me, John. Yeah, essentially what they've outlined, what can go outlined in the story is that three times a year, Oregon athlete, all Oregon athletes on the track and field team will be way, will have a DEXA scan, which is a way of scanning for their body fat percentage. And Robert Johnson, the coach, has said that they use these numbers basically to determine training plans and to see if people need to lose weight. And He's arguing, look, it's a data-driven approach. We're doing this to get the best performance. Oregon is one of the top programs in the country for track and field. And he's like, look, this help informs our training plans. But then there are some more, which I think we can both agree, weight is an issue, is a factor in how an athlete performs. It, you know, to, to pretend otherwise would be foolish. But I think what happens sometimes is that when you are constantly measuring people, these numbers, you know, to a coach, it might be like, okay, these are useful numbers to inform my training. But to an athlete, if you're constantly measuring them and then you're saying, if you're below this threshold of body, if you're above this threshold of body fat, you have to stay on the exercise bike and do extra laps, you know, or you can't compete if your body fat isn't under 12%, which is what one of the allegations from one of the women in the article that they were not allowed to travel to a meet because their body fat was too high, then it becomes problematic. And it also creates this pressure an unhealthy pressure in the minds of the, the athletes. They're constantly thinking about weight with every decision they make. And the coaches might not view it as an unhealthy pressure. They might not consider it that way, but some of these athletes certainly do. If you're being constantly compared, that sort of thing. Well, I found this summary, the quick summary that was Steve put on the homepage. Six women who recently left Oregon said they felt devalued as individuals and at risk for eating disorders because of the data driven approach to the weight, to their weight and body fat percentages. It's interesting to me, John, I felt like he's, he's smart because weight is obviously important to track and field, but you can't really tell someone just say, hey, you look fat, lose weight. You'll, you'll be canceled immediately. So I'm like, wow, this is a guy too. So he's got to be extra careful. He's using data to sort of have these awkward conversations that a lot of coaches are getting trouble for having. This is a sort of sinister way to get around these conversations and be get out, get out of the jail card for free. But I was talking to a top college coach and they're like, do you think he's going to be, this coach thought he might be fired. I was like, what? As much as he's accomplished, I don't think so. But this coach was very, troubled by those body fat percentages because if it's true that he told you can't compete in a meet unless your body fat percentage is below 12 and a half a lot of schools this coach was saying won't let you compete at all if you're 12 percent. that's too low so if they're doing if they're providing false information that's crazy and it sounds like they may just be trying to get certain people off the team i've heard of scholarship coaches trying to get people off the team to quit so they can get the scholarship back you know, I think this is difficult. There are women on the, that have said that, hey, there was no problem. At one point, he asked a woman on the team if she was on birth control. I don't think that's really appropriate at practice. But I know of top women's coaches that have asked athletes that because a side effect of birth control, a lot of birth control pills is weight, water weight. And there's different pills you can take. So to ask that question doesn't seem crazy to me. To ask it at practice in front of other people should not be done. But I just really think 
the specifics are going to matter here. I don't think he's going to be fired. But I, my big takeaway here is I think it's outrageous that they would say you can't compete at a meet if your body fat percentage is at a certain level. That's not important at all. If you're fast enough, you compete at the damn meet. They let fat Lyman may not be in his optimal shape, but I can guarantee you what, if they're one of the best linemen on the team, they're suiting up for the University of Oregon football team. So, you know, I don't have a problem in theory with sort of scans being done. I don't think it's helpful though. I wouldn't do them. But do you think you should be fired for having these scans? I think it's probably no. But I really the best quote in this article to me, I'm not making myself totally clear here, came from Dan Steele. He's a was an assistant coach at Oregon through 2009. He was a former went on to become a head coach in Northern Iowa. And this is what he said in the article. I 100% agree with this. Testing for body fat is humiliating and detrimental to the athlete's psyche. Young female athletes need to know their coaches believe in them. I always tell them, you're fine. If you eat sensibly, your body will morph naturally to the perfect size for optimum performance. And that's what I believe. I agree. You, you teach them how to exercise properly, to really work out. Maybe some athletes do have to work out more than others. You teach them how to eat properly, and it is what it is. I do think a lot of these women probably in this article are probably like Mary Kane. They probably don't just have the body once they went through puberty that's optimal for an elite athlete. Nothing they could have done could have done it. They might have had eating disorders regardless of who was coaching them, but this may have pushed them over the edge. I'm glad this is out in public. Hopefully they can make some changes. This 12 and not letting someone run because of a certain body fat percentage. No, that's wrong. And he had to be below 12 and a half percentage. If that's true, that actual allegation is true. I could see a suspension because that seems like a going against the science, but you know, there's two sides to the story. You know, when you talk to athletes, sometimes they hear what they want to hear. They don't hear necessarily the truth. I mean, it's just, you know, you'd have to have a tape recording of the conversation to see, did they actually say that or yeah, it's, it's an allegation. Yeah. That's what you're trying to say. Yeah. Now, yeah, one one of the best takes I saw on this actually was from Mario Frioli from the Morning Shakeout. He said, "I don't believe that we as coaches should never talk to our athletes about weight or body composition. They're two of many factors that affect not only performance but more importantly overall health. None of these factors should be isolated, however, much less emphasized or fixated upon as goals upon themselves. Which, while we're at it, goes for any number you might discuss with an athlete, including mileage, splits, heart rate data, power, etc." I think he's spot on. This is what we saw with Salazar is he's just obsessed just with weight and he's not thinking about all the other things that go into making a successful athlete. And I think that is the issue here. It might be a helpful tool, but you can't be obsessing on that as the end goal in and of itself. Bingo, John. I think a lot of college coaches also focus on this, about this drinking, like, oh, this kid's a drinker. But, but okay, he may drink a little bit more than you'd like, but he also may be sleeping more than the kid that's staying all night to, up all night to study. So there's just not one aspect of performance. It's all of these factors together are impactful. But I think it's interesting because here we have another case of a man leading a women's program that's getting in trouble for it. And I, again, John, oh, by the way, we didn't get into this. We don't really have time to get into this. But I talked to a coach that's younger than me and that I now really love this week. I had an hour-long conversation, John. The New York Roadrunners this year are not offering the George Hirsch Journalism of the Year Award, John. I feel like you're deserving of that. But since they feel like no journalist is worthy of this award anymore, I have now 
calling coaches, trying to get sources, trying to become a miniature Jonathan Gold so I can win the award next year over you. But I talked to a coach that's younger than me, and I'm a big fan. I don't want people to know who it is because – anyways, but they were saying what I've said, and this was a story idea for you. I do think there's a lot of women's coaches that are just as bad, if not worse than men. They think they can get away with it for fat-shaming these women. And this person agreed with me and had some specific examples. So, anyways, enough eating disorder talk. What else have we missed? Other than the cross country, which we'll talk about on the Friday 15. What other meets do we have this weekend, John? Are there any marathons, anything like that going on? I'm not aware of any road races or anything uh, in the wider running world. I think college cross country is the, the big one in our neck of the woods, at least. All right. VIP subscribers, I'm now going to share with you one of the voicemails that was on my phone. This is from a couple years ago. I'm not sure if this person was trolling, if they're a fan of Let's Run, or if they hate Let's Run, but it's a fascinating voicemail. Here. Sign up for the Supporters Club. Let's Run.com slash subscribe. Become a Let's Run.com VIP today. 